Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ozo Mahi formed in 1995. From day one, the group pulled from eclectic influences that included cumbia, hip-hop, reggae, salsa, funk, and even some ska. Their 2017 record, Nonstop Mexico to Jamaica, goes heavy into the reggae and ska side of their influences. Today, we talk to saxophonist Uli Bella, who we learn has deep ska roots. Before Oso Motley, he played in the trad ska group Yeska, an incredible underrated 90s ska band. Do you remember the first time you heard Ozo Motley, Aaron? Yeah, I, I know it was um, uh, Baile de las Muertes, I think that's the name of the song. Mm-hmm. Cumbia, it's a cumbia song. Yeah. How about yourself? I heard Ozo Motley the first time on tour. Steve Borth played it for us in the van. He brought that and the uh, Jurassic 5 album, both of which have Charlie Tuna Fish or Charlie Tuna on them. And uh, for the longest time, I thought they were the same record. There's two different records. <laughs> well, he's a very distinct rapper. Yes, definitely. Yeah. But uh, actually, I, I definitely enjoy that first Ozo Motley record more than the Jurassic 5 record. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, Jurassic 5 is great too, though. Jurassic 5 is fine. Ozo Motley is just more my jam. By the way, it's called Cumbia de los Muertes. I just looked it up while you're talking. I didn't want to go on record as saying the wrong song title, so I'm correcting myself right now. Yeah. Well, I corrected myself, too. I got the rapper name wrong. I want to talk first about the uh, Oso Motley record that you did in 2017, the nonstop Mexico to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really like the record, by the way. Oh, thank you, man. Um, I mean, we could get into that story of how the, all that came about and Sly and Robbie's participation yeah. in it and all that shit for sure. Yeah, definitely. Walk us, walk us through that. Yeah, tell us, tell us about that record. Um, how did you end up working with uh, Sly and Robbie? Did you just... Uh... Are we starting already? We, we starting already, fellas? Oh, yeah. We're starting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the, the way that particular record came about was uh it was a it was an evolution for sure it was a progression of events that happened and the very the genesis that i can kind of pinpoint is that um we have this song called cumbia de los muertos yeah which is a cumbia kind of reggae hybrid song 
And in the middle of that song, we usually do different things. We'll do, we'll open it up to like almost like a dub reggae section. Like I'll play melodic over it, or sometimes I'll do a clarinet solo. Sometimes we'll go into a lot of different other songs, you know? Um, you know, sometimes we you know go into uh Pasacucci, we'll go into uh police and thieves, you know, just different shit. So then um what happened is at one time our bass player started singing uh this song called Tragos Amargos, which you know, um anyone who's ever been to uh a Mexican party with a lot of drunk uncles, they'll know that song. <laughs> and <laughs> We first started doing it, crowd's reaction was out of control. Like they it just like slipping into that and just kind of like just banging out a hit out of nowhere, you know? And Justin, the percussionist, was like, Hey man, like what would it be cool to like just do different versions of really classical, like like old school Mexican songs? And give it that treatment. And, you know, that idea kind of floated around a lot. And um, we started demoing stuff, but nothing really, you know, um, the, the motivation and the fire came with the participation of Sly and Robbie. Once, what happened was, is that we had done um, a couple projects with them. And when this uh album and the idea of the album started coming out our management hit them up and was like would you guys be interested in producing this record ozomali that ozomali for sure boom hmm. so all of a sudden from like having these kind of like oh, should we do it to all of a sudden oh we got sly and robbie on board well well hell yeah we're gonna do it you know <laughs> a lot of us have grown up listening to that rhythm section and all the like thousands of projects they've ever done. So it was a huge treat for us to be able to have them on board and, and, and give us their kind of like sonic touch that they do, you know? Yeah. Most of the work was kind of sent back and forth from uh, uh, here in LA to Kingston and back and forth, you know, but um, it was super, super fun. And then it was funny because we had just done a, a gig with Booker T from Booker T and the MGs. Yeah. And we ran into Sly and Robbie in Australia and we're like, you know, talking to them and we're, you know, stoked to see them again. And, da, 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 da. and then Booker T walked up to us and was like, hey, what's going on, fellas? Good to see you guys. And it's the first time I ever seen Sly and Robbie actually cheesing about somebody. <laughs> like they were starstruck. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, Booker T, you know, shit. I mean, shit, you know, because obviously a lot of those early Jamaican musicians were really, really into, like, the stack stuff, the Motown stuff, all the soul music that was coming out yeah. of the States, you know? Yeah. You, you know what song on uh, uh, Nonstop I really like a lot is uh, your, I love your version of uh, Andar Conmigo. Oh, right. Which that's like a, that's like a big pop hit, right, in the 2000s. By um, Julieta Venegas. Yes, Julieta Venegas. And the thing was, is that when we started making that record, at first it was just going to be like older songs. But then we kind of realized, like, why don't we expand it to the the Mexican songbook from the past and the present? So, yeah, you get your Julieta Venegas. You get your, um, you know, your classic songs in there. Sabor, uh, uh, um, what is it? Um, uh, what, what is the fucking cover? La Barba and the other song. Um, 
Land of a Thousand Dances was on there. Yeah, that's another one. Yeah, that's another one. You know, obviously got a big Chicano hit, you know. Yeah, I think the more recent ones are really appealed to me. Like I love, um, well, I don't know if it's that recent, but Oye Mi Amor by Mana, um, Eres by Cafe Tacuba. And a lot of people like that one. A lot yeah. of people like Eres, the way we we did it. Oh, it and your Selena song, Como La Flor, too. That one, mm-hmm. was, was, that's an awesome one. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the other thing, too, is that we try to give it a little bit of like, we're going to throw a little bit in a ska, a little bit of rock steady, a little bit of reggae, and a little tinge of like the newer digital stuff, you know? So yeah. each kind of like uh, historical kind of like sounds of the of the island kind of represented, you know? What were you saying about the Edis? A lot of people were really digging that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people dig that one. And um, we kind of got the blessing of the band to do it. So it was really fucking cool to, you know, to do all those songs, you know? And um there's a couple ones that didn't make it either. Um, there's uh, Rama de Mesquite from Ramon Ayala that I don't think made it on the album, which is really, really cool too. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting experience and it was a little bit of a departure from, you know, because Ozo has never been that much of a cover band. But yeah. here we are, we released a whole album, nothing but covers. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was just something different, you know. What kept the songs that, that didn't make it on the album from not being on the album? I think it had to do with running time, a lot of the, a lot of it, and kind of pick, you know, the, the, you know, because it's like, I personally like Rama de Mesquite more than the like Selena a little bit. Yeah. But Selena is just such a huge ass hit. Sure. It's like, okay, that's going to win, you know? It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. like, it's just kind of how it is. Well, I mean, yeah, now, now with streaming, you don't, you're not restricted by length. You could always pack all those on no you truly true you can't and but you know the album format and for what it is for the you know i mean sure you could say it's dead but it's still relevant and and uh to a lot of different things and like you know one perfect example is like you know our our audience in japan and the japanese market Mm -hmm. you know the concept of the album is still pretty strong over there like when we do fuji rock they'll always ask what's your new album what's the new shit you know it's like okay you know Yeah, I still listen to albums as albums and like even though like I get why sometimes like younger artists like release these like 2-hour <laughs> albums. I understand that right. that they're that they're playing the algorithm. They're playing to the algorithm. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It still annoys me cuz then I feel like obligated to listen to the whole thing. thing right. And I'm like, god, why is this so long? Right. <laughs> so I like it when an album's an album length. True, true. Uh, uh, me too. And uh I think there's something about the, you know, like you have this much time to say what you need to say, you know? Yeah. And, and even though it is kind of a constricting parameter, it's something where you, it's like, it forces you to like, you know, to conform to it in a certain way that it's just like, I don't know. I just say, I like, I, I dig it. Like, you know, we, no, we got to do it this much and this much thing. And I even remember like on our first records, we were even so involved in just like shit, like the the interludes, you know, like, <laughs> Oh no, this interlude is like two seconds too long. Blah, 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 you know, in the mastering you know, process and all that. Yeah. Yeah. You get pretty nitpicky with the stuff. Yeah. And for sure. That's one of my favorite things on, on Ozumatli records interstitial bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, For sure. <laughs> I like the jokes in between the songs. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So Andar Conmigo, I literally like, I think it's got a really good groove, the, the reggae groove you have in that. But there's a part kind of like, um, I don't know how, if I can describe this very well. You're doing the chorus and then the rhythm changes 
and it kind of becomes like almost like more like banda style mm -hmm, for like mm -hmm. a minute yeah mm -hmm. i really like that yeah we slip into the banda thing you know um will dog uh if there's anyone in the band that's like the most kind of into that sound is will dog and he even was like you know uh fronting a band that was doing that stuff for a little bit and whatever so he was super into it so we ended up more than a couple times playing with different uh bandas and i forgot the name of that one in particular that recorded with us um but uh yeah that was like kind of like you know we got a full on banda in the studio and just recorded that kind of like weird kind of transition you know mm -hmm. yeah and it's cool how it's how natural it sounds to go from that reggae groove to that banda sound mm. like it has like it, there's obviously like a dynamic like a juxtaposition but it still it still works like it still sounds like it's this natural progression that the song would go into i mean that's kind of ultimately always been kind of ozo motley's formula sure yeah it's kind of trying to figure out the blending of different sounds and traditions and trying to make it sound effortless and and kind of groovy you know where it's like it doesn't feel forced or worked mm -hmm. and you know like you know it, it doesn't always work you know so there's been plenty of songs where you know we're trying to do one particular song trying to like mesh it with another thing it's just not happening you know so it's a lot of trial and error and also knowing the rules of certain you know musical traditions too like what, what you can do and what you can't do a little bit you know mm -hmm. I read one interview where I can't remember who said this, maybe it was you, but that um, the record, the intention of the record too, was to represent the vast diversity of Mexico's population. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, like, so I'm curious what you meant or whoever said that meant by that. Mm, I don't think I said it, but um, uh, so I can't really speculate kind of like what they particularly meant from it. Mm. But what, what I probably get from it is more kind of like, how all the different um you know like i mentioned before kind of like the songs are newer songs and older songs and then songs from all kinds of different styles and artists in mexico so kind of represents the whole kind of like all the different flavors that like kind of like comes out of mexico you know because it's obviously it's not just one people there's a lot of different ethnicities within the, the nation itself cuisines music you name it you know so yeah i think you know i think i think that's what he meant whoever said that quote an early talk about the record too was that it was going to be specifically paying tribute to mariachi and norteño right mm -hmm. and then that got broadened mm -hmm. to represent more music from mexico and then mexican americans as well yeah yeah and and i and i think you know kind of like land of a thousand dances is a perfect example of like that the it, it making it all the way here you know mm -hmm. like yeah. all that music that all that mu uh, music uh um mucho whatever's making it all the way to boom like all the chicano soul stuff that made it up here you know yeah the record release show you did i was reading that you did this record release show in at, at troubadour and that you played with a 16 piece uh, female mariachi band yeah 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 because it was uh um you know like i you know mentioned before we've used bandas live before and then we had a couple times where we've gotten uh the privilege to you know hook up uh, get a whole full on mariachi to do some of these songs so it, it it it's really cool you know to have that much like musical just like 
power on stage, you know? <laughs> I bet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I was going to say manpower, but it's some female mariachi woman power right <laughs> woman. there, you know? Yeah. yeah. When you have that many people on stage, do you do you really need to even mic everybody? Sometimes no, and certain instruments for sure not. Yeah. What what de- what definitely don't you need to mic? What as far as like a mariachi is concerned, usually the trumpets don't need too much miking. Like yeah. some of the louder brass stuff don't need miking at all. And when we do the banda stuff, a lot of that shit don't need miking at all. <laughs> it's like loud ass trumpets. The percussion, because they use a different kind of timbal and mm-hmm. cowbells and stuff, and they have a kind of co- totally different style of playing it. But it is loud, let me tell you. So, um, yeah, <laughs> usually don't. I mean, I'm sure people mic it, but for in our situation, we usually don't need to mic it, you know. And if they do mic it, it's just like one overhead, you know, if that, you know. Yeah, and Troubadour, Troubadour is a weird shaped venue. It's wide and 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 shallow. 16 yeah. piece all female mariachi band plus all of you on stage. Yeah, it was madness. It was so, yeah, yeah. But that was, you know, that was a minute. You know, it's crazy because, you know, it's like it's been a minute since I even thought about it because it's been yeah. that many years now. But yeah, yeah, that was the whole thing. Like we had the mariachi, and uh, I mean, it's it, too bad like Sly and Robbie couldn't make it to the opening, you know, but like, you know, but man, it was, it was super, super fun. I want to go back and we talk a little bit about your roots. Um, you were in a punk band when you were younger, right? Called the Haymarket Eight. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's what we called ourselves at the beginning. Hmm. Um, I'm actually really curious to how you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it mentioned in one article, and I could not find any reference to the band anywhere else. Yeah, because we didn't do anything. But like, <laughs> <laughs> well, in the sense that we never recorded anything. I mean, it was like it was a high school punk band, and we went through like three different names. It was like Haymarket hey, Eight, and then first it was Derudy's Column, but then we found out there was obviously another band called Derudy Column, and then we ended up with a name called High Grade, I think, for a little bit. But you know that the, the high school thing, at least uh, I was playing guitar in it because at that point I had studied piano clarinet sax formally you know Mm. and um you know conservatory like orchestras the whole nine so when i went through junior high is when i kind of you know you kind of discover the music you kind of like kind of formulate your personality and your you know who you're gonna hang out with you know so obviously punk and goth and a lot of that stuff was what i was into so then when I started playing guitar, I almost did not want to take lessons with it. I wanted it to just be something I figured out and wanted to learn on my own. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? You know, especially when it comes to punk rock, a lot of Ramon songs, a lot of this, a lot of that. And and then mm-hmm. so then that's when I met these guys. Uh, it was like Chris, uh, Dewey. I forgot the other. The Roman was the name of the drummer. That's right. And um yeah that's you know we were kind of wannabe uh fugazi wannabe tool wannabe sonic youth wannabe like oh you know you know those sounds you know yeah (laughs) yeah those are cool things to want to be though yeah 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 (laughs) you know we were definitely into all that stuff and we we you know one of our my first big gig was playing um al's bar downtown la like and i was underage so i had to just play and then leave yeah you know so 
that's that you know most most of my early experiences gigging like that in uh in high school at least was mostly like you know backyard punk parties little coffee shops and our big time show at al's bar (laughs) (laughs) you know who else was on that bill at al's bar no i don't it was like one of those like it was a tuesday night and no one gave a shit you know like (laughs) it was like something like that where it's like maybe 10 people in the whole house 15 people you know yeah but then uh uh, after college is when i ended up oh i'm not not after college after high school when i ended up at pcc that's when i ended up connecting with the majority of the dudes that we all ended up i ended up joining yeska and that's when Mm -hmm. my whole kind of like like just getting injected into the scene just like that you know and and uh and honestly after the first show with those guys and just seeing how people were dancing and how it wasn't just a bunch of dudes in the front trying to fuck each other up and there was like (laughs) really pretty girls in the front dancing i was like okay (laughs) i think i'm I'm down for this now you know (laughs) (laughs) you know And, and the other thing too is that i was playing sax you know, yeah. and actually playing the instrument that I was, you know, I guess most proficient in, in a certain way, at least improvisation wise, you know, and, uh, and at that point, especially in college, um, cause I was studying a lot of jazz at that point. So the allure of the traditional jazz, uh, traditional ska thing, um you know the, you, you know your scottalites you're all that all those type of musicians and the way they were improvising really like inspired me your jackie me too's your roland alfonso's your tony mccook's all that uh don drummond's like like i was like oh man like this is the perfect blend of everything that i like like improvisation you know uh and uh 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 music that people can dance to, you know? In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Did you have a point, maybe it happened in college, where you felt like rather than, oh, I just want to be, um, I kind of want to turn my back on all this music education and be self-taught. Well, maybe I want to, Maybe I want to go back and and honor some of these, like this music upbringing I had and kind of maybe marry it more with these interests I have. Did you have that moment in college? Um, I think what it was, was one of those things that um, I just kind of realized that all these things that I had already studied a lot of, like clarinet and sax and piano, were just, and, 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 you know, studied it formally, like it just, it just helped me so much in that other world, like all because my dad is a musician too. So mm-hmm. he exposed me to a lot of different music and whatever from where he's from. And so it, it's just, you know, like 
it's almost like I showed up with a lot of tools. You know what I mean? Like I, I had, even though maybe my experience wasn't all that, but I had a lot of, you know, tools in my kit that I could pull out like, oh, we need a clarinet for this song. Oh, well, hey, shit, I can play clarinet. Oh, you need me to play keyboard for this? Oh, I can play a little keyboard, you know, like, like it just had me set up in a way that like, um made me more into now like now what i am now kind of like more of a multi-instrumentalist you know like where i could i usually end up playing like four or five different instruments on the gig you know yeah yeah i mean it's i've known several like musicians who've kind of gotten into punk or ska or whatever that were given very formal education when they were kids and they kind of turned away from it but then they kind of like yeah they get to a point where they realize well that formal education i had as a kid it's actually a great thing that I, a great gift I was given that I can apply to this music that I like. Oh yeah. And, and a, like a perfect example of that is just in general. Like when you're, when I was a little kid, like most little kids, I want to rock baby. What's up? Like, I want to learn how to play electric <laughs> guitar, dude. Like fuck, <laughs> fuck the nerd shit, man. And my dad being, my dad being like a, 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 a you know, a, a classical violinist, he's like, no, you got to start on piano. And I thought that was the jivish shit, man. I was just like, dude, no, I don't want to play piano. I want to play guitar, you know? <laughs> and, and not just guitar. I want to play electric guitar, you know? Like, 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 and so he started me on piano, though. And I studied piano all the way into high school. Like, I was playing Rachmaninoff, Bach, all these, like, really complex pieces and memorizing them and all this shit. I couldn't play a lick of it now. But, yeah, like, back then I could. and. That knowledge and that foundation, though, was so invaluable after the fact. Like, so, like, like it was almost like he knew that if I wanted to, like, have any kind of chance in the music career, I don't know if he consciously thought this or not, but he just knew that a really good foundation was essential, you know, as far as the music thing, you know, and learning piano, learning harmony on the piano, learning theory on the piano, um learning the music history from like my professors who were teaching me and all that shit at, at least western you know traditions or whatever it it really set me set me up you know for everything else you know yeah definitely so with yeska what did you were you a founding member or was the band already happening when you met them no it, it was already happening they were like uh there were, most of those dudes were bosco tech dudes Mm. and and uh that's how they started like like you know bosco tech talent show vibes and they i guess a certain number of them went to pcc and that's where i met them at least walter i remember for sure walter and um they came up to me or at least i don't know if it was walter or anton the drummer but you know, they were like, hey, man, you know, want to jam out with this band? Da, 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 come over. It was at, it, the rehearsals were at David's house, Montebello. And uh, I was like, yeah, man, I'll roll with you. What's up? Go and let me go check it out, you know? And that, that's how I met those guys. Yeah. It was, they, they had already established a, 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 not, not necessarily a name for themselves, but they were a band already, you know? Mm hmm. Yeah, and so Yeska was um, strictly an instrumental band? Yes, for the most part, 90%. 90%. We had a couple songs that we would sing on. Like we did uh, Timba Timbeo, 
which is like an old, I think an old Tito Puente tune. I'm not sure, but we would, you know, sing that one. But yeah, for the most part, it was all instrumental. Was it your first record, Scafro Cuban Jazz? That's your first record? Scafro Cuban Jazz? That was the Scafro first. Cuban Jazz. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was the first album. And then before that, we had released uh, the EP, The Great Hunted Chapas, with Steady Beat. And then I think we had a couple of other songs on some Steady Beat compilations in Mocoso. I don't remember what other song, but there was like a couple of things that we had done that built up to that album. Yeah, so the Greyhound of Chiapas, that, that's the song you wrote, right? Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about Steady Beat? Yeah. Because that's kind of like a label and kind of a, they, they put on shows. Yeah, they did. Luis. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, what can you say? Like, they were just <laughs> instrumental in the scene, you know, as far as like putting those shows together. I mean, when you're in the middle of it and doing all these shows and doing all this shit, you don't really think about it. But like looking back, because I know that, you know, I just got interviewed not that long ago um, for a documentary, I believe that's, you know, um, that they're trying to do about this whole scene. Yeah, like there was almost every week there was a moment, there was a time where it was like it felt like almost every weekend there was a different steady beat show going on, you know? And that's just so great for the scene in general. Like, wow, like it, it just builds up that kind of like community and camaraderie that like, you know, really nurture not only the fans, but the bands, you know? So I've talked to Luis before and he told me that uh, initially when he was trying to promote shows, he would just put on whoever ska band, but at a certain point, pretty early on, he's like, you know what? I like traditional ska. We're just going to stick with the traditional ska scene. Mm-hmm. And he really... Mm-hmm focused on traditional ska and that was a big part of like la's traditional ska scene uh, evolving was the steady beat, steady beat shows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and for me at least from where my tastes were at at the time i was in the same boat like the 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 old ska the old jamaican stuff was what really was like like you know floating my boat you know like like yeah i like the two-tone stuff but but I love the old stuff. Like that was like my shit. So, um, yeah, like so many opportunities and so many great shows and like memories and like, you know, like, you know, like because of Lewis and steady beat, I can say like, I opened up for Desmond Decker, you know, like, dang, Mm, you know, like that was such a fucking experience, you know? We're playing with all, you name it, so many different legendary bands from New York, you know, um, that would come through to L.A. We would open up for them and whatever. And just, it was great, you know. And um, there was a lot of great, 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 great shows during that era of L.A., for sure. And a lot of great bands, you know, like. Can you think of any of the bands from that scene, from that era? I mean, for me, at the time. As far as like who I thought were or why I try to be like 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 uh, the top shelf cats, you know what I mean? Yeah. Was Jump with Joey, sure, and Hepcat. Those were the two bands where we're, we're always like, damn, we can only be as good as those guys, you know, like that type shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, of course, there were all these other bands that I loved, you know, like I loved Ocean Eleven, like those. They're such a great band to me. Um, 
Mob Town, there were the homies, you know, there's so many bands, you know, King Willie from all that era, Israelites, like, I, you know, I've shanties. Like, I remember uh, I went to high school with one of them, you know, <laughs> so it's like, it was just, it's a cool era, man. A really cool era. C-Spot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of bands, man. So when you think back to playing these shows and you, and you close your eyes and you think back and you look at the audience, is everyone dressed up? Rude boys, skinheads. What does the crowd look like? Okay, so the thing is, too, is that like Jessica, for the most part, only one of our guys would dress the part. You know, like most of us kind of like, kind of look sloppy Chicano stoner vibes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while we would all suit up and we would look cool when we did that. You know what I mean? But the crowd themselves, the audience, yes, they were very dressed up, man. <laughs> lot and some of them to the you know to the nines like they were looking good man and you know you had your you know you know your typical rude boy look you know whatever's and um yeah and and uh there was a you know a handful of i mean there was a moment too where there was a lot of skinheads um and skinhead problems too <laughs> but mm -hmm. um no but for the most part yes like everyone's really dressed really well at least i remember you know you guys didn't feel like uh, like you really wanted to get into the whole uh, dressing up thing. Uh, I I don't know what it was about us, man. You know, <laughs> like 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 yeah, like a lot of us didn't dress th that look, and then so that kind of maybe in that maybe in that way it was just almost like kind of like our thing. Like we're gonna dress however we want, you know. <laughs> but 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 like David, you know, he would he he had the look, you know, with the pork pie hat and all that shit. But like. The rest of us just yeah, like I said, man. I don't even know how you. I don't even know where you like what you call our style, like because it, it wasn't really a style as far as clothing wasn't concerned. But like I said, there was always that moment where it was like, hey, man, should we all wear suits to this particular gig? Yeah, let's do it. And that's when you know the band would look pretty cool, you know. But um, yeah, yeah, we never, uh, as, as at least from maybe you know from what I remember, we never adopted the style that. Compared to other bands, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So um, Alfredo Ortiz, was he in the band too? Yes, Scott? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Alfredo Ortiz, he played, did he play it also a little bit? Yeah, he sure did. And then I know he went on to play with Gogo Bordello, and I think he's in Los Lobos now, right? Yep, he sure is. I just ran into him in Boulder, Colorado, just hung out with him, yep. And he landed, he landed the Los Lobos gig, which... Honestly, like, dude, it's like he's known that camp since forever because uh, Alfredo, we used to be in a in a punk band with Louis Perez's kid, Louis Perez mm. Jr. They used to be in a punk band called Los Villains. And so he know, has known those Lobos in that whole camp since forever since he was a kid. So for him to jump in on the drums, it's almost like family vibes, you know, like all yeah. oh, like. It makes so much sense, you know, and he fits that band like a glove. I saw a photo that you posted to Instagram um, where it was a, a Dia de los Muertos show. Um, and it was, a, yeah, it was Yeska and it was you and another horn player and you got the makeup on. Do, do you remember this photo or remember this moment? Yeah, yeah. That was <laughs> uh, me, me and Seth Slim, who was playing trumpet at the time at the... You know, because the thing with Yeska, which was interesting, um, was that 
we were, you know, obviously part of the whole ska scene, steady beat scene, traditional ska scene in LA, but we used to get a lot of like the Chicano scene and rock and Espanol gigs too. So we, we kind of like, we're in between those two worlds in a lot of ways. And so we would get a lot of Dia de los Muertos gigs. Uh, we ended up playing like um, the big top, big top locals gig at the Universal Amphitheater or whatever. And so we were like, you know, kind of doing a lot of these like uh, Wateque, like big rock and Espanol shows too. Mm. Which, which in a lot of ways, you know, ska is always represented in that sound too. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, tons of bands from Mexico, Secta Cor, Maldita Vecindad, you name it. Like ska is in that sound. You know, what were some of the big uh, rock and espanol bands that you played with? Let me see if I remember all of them. God dang, I, I'm pretty sure we played with Maldita Vecindad. Um, God, I'm blanking out right now. <laughs> um. I think Fabuloso. Yeska might have opened up for Fabulosos, but um, oh yeah, yeah. The big gig that I do remember, though, that like we as Yeska as kids, we were just like, "Yo, man, we made it, baby!" You know, like <laughs> <laughs> you know, like one of those gigs where it just kind of defines like you're rehearsing every day for it because you know this is your shot, baby. It was one time when we opened up for Tito Puente at the House of Blues in Hollywood. Nice. And that was a big deal for us, man. Really big deal, you know, to be able to play that type of music and that sound, you know, because it's like, it's, you know, pretty hardcore salsa gig, you know, but here we are playing these like sky instrumentals mixed with the Latin stuff, you know. What, what did his crowd, his crowd think of you guys? It was cool. No, it went really well for us, you know, and there was a lot of our fans there to support us too. So, you know, it went really well. Yeah. You joined Osomotli. While you were still in Yeska, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the thing was, is that, you know, you know, being a horn player, you're just trying to get any kind of love, man. You know, you're just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you want to play with this band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, there was a moment where, like, even at the Viper Room, Yeska and Ozo Motley would play on the same night. So I would just, I would just be doing double duty type shit. Like, okay, you know. And the, the, the only thing, you know, with that is that at a certain point, Especially if both of the bands are, you know, doing pretty well, it's like the schedules start, you know, conflicting. And that's it's when it's when it gets really hard to juggle that, you know. We'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA plus and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Were you at the very beginning of Oso Motley or did you kind of mm-hmm. join after they'd already? Oh, so you were at the very beginning. So mm-hmm. interesting. Okay. And um, yeah, I, I'm very. F- I'm. I've read on the big. Be- I've read on the origins of Oso Motley, but I'm still kind of like don't know if I fully understand. Like, uh, like, I think well, as I understand it, Raúl P- Pacheco kind of got the band to play uh, a Peace and Justice Center at an event for the first gig. Am I? And so it was formed around that. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm understanding correctly. Oh, okay. So, 
Here, I'll break it down to you. So, like, what happened was is that because I wasn't the only guy that was like living in Ozo Motley and Yeska. It was Fredo, me, and Anton, the drummer. Oh, because okay. Anton was playing in Yeska too. And so, what happened was is that um, Anton and Will Dog, the bass player for Ozo Motley, used to work for the LA Conservation Corps back in the day, you know, post riots LA, what that meant, like, you know, for at least those kids. Uh, a lot of the conservation corps was like planting trees, cleaning over graffiti, but Anton and Will Dog were part of a, it was almost like a group of 60, 30, 30 to 60 workers, if I remember, that they would put on these plays of, of earthquake preparedness, you know? So the, the first time I met a lot of these guys where, you know, they were doing these plays at elementary school about, you know, get your, you know you know whatever bullshit about the earthquakes you know the big one you know they always yeah. tell us about it in california <laughs> the uh, the catalyst the big thing the big event was that like at the time these workers they decided to see if they could try to unionize the conservation corps and all the workers that were in it you know the conservation corps didn't dig that shit at all mm -hmm. so they kind of isolated those workers and they were kind of like well you guys are fired you know so as a form of protest, they ended up occupying the building where they worked at, which was this huge building, which I think it's an office building now. It's right off of 4th and Bixel in downtown LA. And in this occupation of this building, they decided to rename the place the Peace and Justice Center, you know? Mm. So with all these workers, all these youth in direct, you know, conflict with this LA, you know, the Conservation Corps, which is supposed to be helping youth, it just kind of created this kind of, I guess, messy, you know, um, public relations thing and it didn't look, wasn't a good look. So they brought in a mediator to try to like figure it out. And what happened was is that the 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 they lost their jobs, but they got to keep the rights of the building and do whatever they wanted for the next four or five years of in that building, you know. Weird. And yeah, it was really weird, but obviously they, they, you know, they, but they took advantage of that and turned this building into like almost like a art center, community center slash squat. There was all these bands that came out of that peace and justice center. So the thing with Raul is that he was in Sacramento and the first day that he quit school or quit, I don't know, his job or something and came down to LA was like the first time where, where Anton brought him to a gig and was like, Hey, we're going to start a new band, you know? So I remember the first rehearsals for Ozo Motley were, was like me, Crunchy Espinoza, um, Cut Chemist was there. Jiro was there. We still, Charlie had, wasn't there yet. And, it was one of those things where we were just kind of all asking each other, well, what do you know? Well, what do you know? Well, I know this cumbia song. Well, I know this salsa song. Well, I know this like, you know, Norteño song or whatever. And we just kind of like, well, you know, the big thing is just like, we got to, you know, be entertaining and get people dancing. Da, da, da. And that's kind of the, how the band started. The idea was that every weekend they would throw parties at the Peace and Justice Center to like, you know, pay for supplies and whatever else was needed for the building since the kids were occupying it then for the rest of the time, you know? Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. 
I've always been curious about um, how Cut Chemist and Charlie Tuna, because they were already because Jurassic Five was already a thing, I believe, at that point. How how they ended up being part of um, founding or the very early stages of Osomatli. Well, if I remember correctly, um, Cut and Will Dog were in a band um, before Dre Five, so they already oh, okay. knew each other and. That's how kind of that happened. And then I remember um, Cut Chemist being in the band. And then I don't think Cut Chemist brought Charlie into the band. It was one of those. Charlie knew Will Dog, too, since they were kids. And I guess Will Dog called Charlie was just like, hey, man, you know, you should come down and check out my new band. Uh, you're going to love us. That type shit, you know. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, he's in the band. <laughs> yeah. And the next thing you know, he was in the band and recorded the whole record with us and all that. Yeah. The band, okay, so the you're kind of you're kind of part of this peace and justice center a scene. I don't know if scene is the correct word in this case, but that's kind of the the foundation of Osomatli in the in the beginnings. Mm -hmm. Like in the first year, we were, all we were doing was like a lot of like benefits and like oh, there's a demonstration, they need music. It's like Osomatli will do it, you know. And that's how we kind of started. And the thing is also with Osomatli is that especially with cats like will dog the want and drive to play gigs was really intense you know it was very common for ozo to play two three gigs a day we were mm. just like madmen you know like like this was the style like <laughs> you know zach de la rocha used to have this space in highland park called regeneracion where he would do shows and whatever and I remember one time, I think, I think Rage was going to play there, and I don't know what other bands. And you know, uh, Will Dog, or I don't remember who called. Uh, whoever was running the show was like, "Hey, man, can we, can we, uh, can we get on the bill, man? You know, can we play the show?" No, nah, man, we already have too many bands. You know, oh, there's us, and it's like, and so we could, we would not take no for an answer. We ended up hustling somehow. <laughs> where we set up on the other side of the stage and we would play music in between while the bands were setting up. <laughs> other that's the way to do it. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just like, no, we want to keep, we were very, 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 you know, very hardcore about uh, wanting gigs, wanting to play in front of people. Can you recall other bands or musicians that were part of that sort of uh, scene, that Peace and Justice Center collective mm -hmm. if you will yeah yeah um let's see there was quetzal quetzal came out of that scene or at least maybe they were probably even before that scene but they were involved in that scene i uh, remember black eyed peas oh they were from that i know because i know you guys go back yeah 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 or uh or bands like Olin. um yeah there was a there was quite a bit of bands that kind of kind of came out of that scene you know and different ones. I, I know I'm forgetting a bunch of other ones, you know, but uh, um, there was, was like a, even a cafe in there for a moment, you know, there were skateboard ramps, you know, so it was really vibrant for the time it was kind of like happening, you know, I could maybe, you know, attest it to kind of like, you know, uh, some arty squat punk shit that would happen in Europe. 
You know what I mean? Like, you know, like we're a lot of cool things are happening here, you know, shows and this and that and whatever, you know. Going back to uh, Yeska and while you're in both bands and you guys are playing the Viper Room a lot. Now you were also the the two bands were competitive with each other, right? Like in terms of like who's going to put on the best show? Yes, yes, yes. And because of it. There's a reason why, like, Ozo Motley started doing the whole Samba thing, you know? Yeah. Um, there was a night where, like, just Yeska smoked, you know? <laughs> and Will Dog's a super competitive dude. So he was, like, talking to Justin that was, like, on some, like, yo, man, we can't let that happen again. What can we do, man? What can we do to make it, like, fucking extra special? And then, you know, they thought of the whole, like, Samba procession in and, the whole thing, which, you know, it's something to this day that we still fucking do, you know, like <laughs> it's kind of crazy because now it's kind of turned into this whole thing where we're playing in the crowd and it's really cool. And it's all kind of like, you know, Kumbaya ish, but it, the roots of it is actually pretty like on some competitive shit, you know? Yeah, for sure. How, what was it like for you to be in these two bands that were competitive with each other? Did you have, like, did you have a horse in the race? Did you care who did a better set? I mean, I've dug it because it put fire on everybody's asses to play good, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like on some competitive, like, fuck this dude, you know, like, I hate this dude. No, it was on <laughs> some like, you know, you know, the same kind of, you know, like, like it was kind of the same kind of competitiveness as like, maybe like how the old jazzers were, you know, cutting mm -hmm. heads, man, you know, like, you know, like, you know, if you're going to play, you know, so, you know, if you sit in on a tune, you better fucking come correct, baby. You know, like it was, it was that kind of vibe more, you know, than anything else, you know, um, like, like, uh, uh, the competition and that vibe was on the more, it kind of like sharpened the musical sword in a certain way, you know? Yeah. Like you better you better come with it, man. You can't just come on some bullshit, man. You know, like mm -hmm. you know, and then it motivates you to practice your own instrument, it motivates you to try to get better on your shit, you know. So and uh for me in particular, like, you know, I was most of the guys that like Crunchy, rest in peace, you know, like he was like one of the guys that like definitely always had we had the lighter when it comes to lighting shit on, on people's asses, you know, like, Hey man, you know, calling me, Hey man, let's practice, man. We're going to practice or I'm going to show up and no, I'm crushing. I don't feel like it. Come on, man. You're wasting time, bro. Da -da 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 -da. You know, it's like, Oh <laughs> shit. Okay. You know, like, uh, you know, it, it would get serious. It got really serious. And, and I'm a better musician to the, you know, I'm about to be 50 in a couple of years and I'm a better musician because of it. You know what I mean? Like all yeah. that experience, all that, like, you know, practicing and jamming and sitting in and playing with each other and that vibe of like competition, you know, like, you know, you better come correct, you know, no faking the funk in this motherfucker. Like, let's do this shit. <laughs> so it, 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 it was really kind of like that, you know? So uh, I want to go back to black eyed peas and I think what they call like black eyed, black eyed pods or something like that back then. I don't know. I don't remember that, but maybe I'm not like, oh. no, I just remember us playing with them a lot, you know, back in the day, you know? So most people know them as like a very, very much a pop act. So what were they like in, in those days? Oh, hip hop groups straight up. And they danced really well. 
like all those dudes come from great, amazing dance backgrounds, you know, and it was very hip hop and, and whatever. And then, um, super cool cats, you know, super cool. Like even to this day, if I run into Will, I am, or any of those guys taboo or any of them, they're super nice, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to think about it. Like, but I mean, if there's one band that basically lapped everybody, (laughs) you know, it's like, they're not even, you know, no bands that like can kind of even like can fathom that type of like, you know, I can't fathom being number one in Sweden and in the Philippines and in I don't know <laughs> where, and you're, you know, filling up these huge like stadiums and shit, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah there's a, there's a certain point of success where you become something else. You just become like, almost like this idea in a way, you know, like you're not mm. even... You're not even like individual, like you're you're beyond the person. You're just this brand almost, if you will. Like whether or not that's yeah. your intention, it's it's like a it's a it's hard to comprehend that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, it is. Like I can't comprehend like the amount of success those guys have had. I I, I can't even fathom it, you know? Like like yeah, mobs of people. And and this and this is like, you know, I mean didn't they do the Super Bowl? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, those dudes are like, it's crazy, man, you know? So, um, and in fact, I remember Ozo playing, I think it was in Tasmania or somewhere in Australia, maybe around that part of the world, when Ozo, when we played a gig, and it was the first time Fergie had joined the band. Mm. and it was her first gig and most of the other dudes in the band didn't even know who she was because it was another <laughs> it was kim kim was the, the singer before that and uh i think i think it was kim right i think I'm getting her name right but um uh i remember like yeah man there's this new singer we got and you know, i never met her but you know will says she's cool da, 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 da. i'm like okay <laughs> <laughs> and and to think that like from that to like what they ended up being and becoming are you kidding me it's like crazy man yeah it's unreal yeah totally so the your first record um you released in like 98 so and it does really well well so what kind of leads to you know you're being this band that plays the center you're, you're playing these clubs to kind of getting to that level of recording that record and it you know it, it releasing and, and kind of catching an audience well the one thing is like you know like i mentioned before it was like ozo started doing started obviously from like a lot of demonstrations a lot of this a lot of benefits yeah and all that to you know doing the whole la thing you know and um especially with the clubs and whatnot and one thing that kind of kind of i think kicked it off for us especially was the idea of the of the residency Mm. so there was a couple clubs that we ended up having long like month-long residencies you know and one of them was the viper room and one of them was the dragonfly and another one was the opium then what they called what you know used to be called the gaslight i believe but then they called it the opium then we were there and these three rooms, man, you know, because of these three rooms, I think we were in the consciousness of a lot of people, actors and different industry types in Hollywood. 
And, you know, I remember even in like when during the opium den, we would consistently sell this place out like every week on a Thursday, man. And it got to the point where even like the fire department would show up because we were just too many people over to pass, you know, consistently though. This was like, like, it wasn't just like, Oh, once in, no, this is like all the time. And you know, when you're in a town like LA, Hollywood, whatever, and you're pulling that type of shit, someone's starting to notice someone's putting an eye. It's like, what's going on with this band? So obviously you started creating a buzz and that's when, you know, Labels started trying to court us and whatever. And we lucked out big time, I think, because the the label we ended up signing with for our first album was uh, Almo Sounds, which was Jerry Moss's and Herb Albert's label. Mm. And they had sold A&M and this was like their new venture. And they just wanted to sign cool shit. They didn't, it wasn't nothing based on genre. There wasn't nothing based on anything, you know? So they saw they signed a bunch of bands the biggest one in the label being garbage and um you know it was like a boutique label with a lot of power and they were the ones who um ended up releasing our first record and you know it, it ended up being really cool for us i think because they gave us an awesome budget you know they really believed in us um R.I.P. Jerry Moss, who just passed away. He just passed away like uh, once like a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the coolest dudes I ever. Herb Albert too. Two of the coolest dudes I ever met in the industry. You know, as far as bosses are concerned, as far as like label owners. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, most of the time, a lot of these label people could give you wouldn't give us the time of day. Like Jerry Moss is at a gig helping Will Dog with his Ampeg amp on the stage. Like this guy doesn't have to do none of that shit, you know, but he was super cool and humble like that. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, so they they were the ones who um, released the record and unfortunately they ended up selling the label to Interscope. So kind of like when you sell a house and it has that couch in it and the couch goes with the house, that's what kind of happened with us. (laughs) I see. You got (laughs) it. Yeah, we ended up in Interscope for our second record. And um, though the album that we did release with Interscope won a Grammy, it was the album that we released on 9-11. And, you know, obviously commercially, sales-wise, it didn't do that hot, you know? Yeah, you're talking about Embrace the Chaos, yeah. Yes, yes. But it was was a good album. And um, I I just think that Interscope at the end of the day didn't know what the fuck to do with us. And... The guy that we had and who was A and Ring us at Interscope, he had they he he came up came with us from Almo too, but God bless him, like Interscope gave him U two to deal with. You know? It's like, oh, <laughs> I'm dealing with Ozomali, but now I gotta deal with U two. Okay, where's my priorities here? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like <laughs> you know, like it was, you know, we were just not it it wasn't a good fit. So we got out of that label and then you know, we've been with so many. Oh, I, and then we, I think we, after that was Concord Fantasy. They were super cool. Great label, too. I, I got to say they were um, probably one of our better kind of relationships, music industry-wise. Then we went through a bunch of different other labels, you know. 
I don't know if it even matters anymore, honestly, but yeah, that's how, that's how, that's how kind of Ozo Motley kind of like got kicked around from different places, you know? A band, I can see how a band like you, like you're, you're very diverse. You're, you don't have a clear identity the way that labels back at that time wanted. So mm-hmm. I can understand how it'd be a challenge for them to understand what to do with you. Oh, all day. I mean, they didn't even know, like, there was a couple times where I remember even, like, when Capital was trying to court us. And supposedly, they, they in one of the things that they were, you know, wanted to do was they wanted Gary at the time uh head of the label to come see us but i guess he was too busy or some shit man right and they were like well we're gonna bring also to him we're gonna they so they basically were like you're gonna have a show at capital invite all your friends you know (laughs) like 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 we're gonna do a show there you know and then the story is from what i heard is that we fucking doing the show it's going off it's fucking cool all our friends are there he walks in and he's watching us, and then he just says, I don't get it, and walks out. And that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I don't know how fucking true that is because I was playing on stage, you know. But that's what I heard. He just walked in. He's just like, I kind of don't get this. Who's the front guy? What's going on here? What's the style, you know? I mean, that's, you know, um, it's been our strength and our detriment, you know, like we can play all kinds of music, be in all kinds of scenes, but what bin are you going to put us in or what box is it that, you know, whatever is, is going to fit for us, you know? In defense of ska will return in a moment. Hey everybody. It's Barry from the what podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA plus and they include camping. Russ, how'd people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the what podcast. Thanks. The Cut Chemist Suite, I think that was the first song to kind of take off from that record. Is that true? I think between that, that song, and, well, there was a, that summer that K-Rock was playing the shit out of Como Ves. Oh, okay. So that was like kind of an L.A. hit. I don't know. I mean, we were on the road at the time, so we didn't even get to experience our own hit. But, like, yeah, like, um, supposedly they were playing it a lot that summer, you know? And, yeah, but Cut Chemist was the one that we did the video for and that one got a lot of love on MTV for you know I don't know a little bit yeah cumbia de los muertos too like i remember seeing that on like 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 not not in 98 like in the early 2000s i remember seeing that on like these sort of like latin music comps that you would see in like cos plus or something very mainstream oh, right right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i remember i remember that like i don't know um obviously that's a that's a fan favorite. You still play it. I don't know mm-hmm. why, but it feels like that probably kind of found its way into like some unique paths of, of audience and stuff. For sure. That's like a, I guess if you can call it like an underground hit, like that song, even though I guess it didn't have that commercial kind of hit, but it, 
I mean, the interesting thing about that song is that during that time, a lot of stations were like, okay, so there was like a, you know, Spanish stations were like, we love this song, but you got to take that rap out of it. You know, it's just not going <laughs> to, you know, and then there was like other places, you know, so it's like, at that point, we were on that tip, like, no, fuck, no, we're not, we're not taking the rap. That's the song. Maybe if we were smarter back then, we would have been like, sure, we'll give you a radio edit, you know, like, you know, to at least get a foot in the door with that world. But we were so kind of like, you know, dogmatic about our art, you know, a little bit, you know, like, <laughs> no, it's not that way. But, but, but yeah, like, and, you know, it's, it's crazy because now it, uh, hearing Spanish, on mainstream radio like commercial pop radio isn't isn't crazy anymore you know like hearing um uh, uh english reggaeton song on you know spanish radio isn't that crazy anymore you know it's like that those boundaries have kind of become less and less uh, you know in the time you know from when we started where it was really really divided you know mm-hmm. yeah pop radio i mean it's actually like i feel like lately spanish on pop radio is almost like it's it's gone to a level i've never seen before oh for sure like with bad bunny and and some of these artists i mean these are like the biggest pop artists now dude forget about it dude like think about if you would have told me 20 years ago or 30 years ago that like that kiss fm was going to be playing korean music i'd have been no way (laughs) no fuck no no way you know but there's not there's k-pop on kiss fm you know, so, uh, you know, hopefully just more different type shit goes on like that. I think it's cool. You know, whatever, you know, so late nineties, early two thousands, you're a band that's, um, you're an LA band. You have songs mostly in Spanish, some English. It's, it's not, there's not really, it's not really a clear path for that <laughs> in, in the industry. It's not really much of that happening no we're completely weirdo like you know that's why it was kind of funny when we did one of our first big tours as ozo was the warp tour and talk about nobody sounding like us you know yeah i remember mike water one of those guys being like you guys are the real punks (laughs) you know like, like nobody sounds like you guys you know but most of you know um you know, it's just, it, it was interesting. And, and God bless Mike Watt, because that was one of the old punkers that would always come out and watch us and Hell watch yeah. us play, you know, and be always into us, you know. And um, he had this holster, Maglite holster, that he would carry hot sauce. <laughs> <laughs> what brand? Do you remember? I think like Tapatio. But okay. like many, many a catered meal were saved because of Mike Watt's hot sauce. <laughs> he always keeps that motherfucking thing on. yeah he keeps that he keeps that damn thing on him <laughs> so one person that uh was a fan of your first record was carlos santana right yeah yeah supposedly the story is is that uh sal jr gave it to dad and was like check this shit out look these guys are kind of doing something that you know like in your you know what you kind of were doing you know because i mean uh santana is definitely like one of those guys that even as a musician growing up in la you got to learn a couple santana songs to play at the party you know what i mean mm-hmm. so <laughs> he totally put you know you know took the band under his wing for a while you know we got to record with him we did multiple 
national tours with him. Then we did a national tour with him and Mana. It was just like, yeah. man, and you know, talk about um, an experience where it was like, you know, his band, it was just like almost like a school, man. You know, like Benny Rigfield, the bass player, he used to play with Miles Davis, Chester, Chester Thompson, CT, the keyboard guy at the time, one of the main guys from Tower of Power, you know, Carl, fucking Raul Rico, like, I mean, just real heavy duty musicians, you know what I mean? And we were around them all day, just like picking their brains, practicing with them, doing whatever, you know? What was it like to play with uh, Mana? I mean, that whole tour was amazing. It was one of like, probably one of our best tours ever. Mm -hmm. And the crazy shit about it, because we're the first band of three, obviously, right? And they would they would switch off between Mana, who would close out tonight. Sometimes Mana did, sometimes Santana did. Mm. We would we somehow hustled it where we got to be the horn section for both of those bands. Oh you wow. know? So we yeah. were playing and we were playing with Santana like at least three, four songs, and then we were playing with Mana at least a couple of tunes too. You know, and it was always super fun, man. And then the end of the tour, fucking Carlos ended up paying us, giving us some bread for it. Damn. You know, like, hey, you guys played, you know, like for me, it was like, dude, this is already, I'm already getting his experience and being able to jam out with you, dude. Like playing Oye Como Va with the guy who made it famous. Like, come mm -hmm. on, man. You know, like get out of here. But yeah, no, super, super, super um, educational um one of the best exp musical experiences ever like i mean i mean sacramento i remember pharaoh sanders showing up us getting to jam out with him minneapolis prince showed up because prince what? santana was santana was one of prince's favorite guitarists prince shows up with fucking larry graham jr dude oh, both of them both of them dressed all in white, dog. And they're like, they're like, they're, they're sitting in with the band, and we're just like, dude, it's just so good, man. Just so fucking good, man. Like, man. So it was like that. A lot of that, you know. That's mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Was this tour in the U.S. and Mexico? We did some Mexican shows. Yeah, we did. Not a lot of Mexico with Santana, but we did a couple of them. Yeah. Mexico City. Mana are massive, right? In Mexico? Yeah, yeah. Mana could Mana and Water I mean they're I think they're from Guadalajara, but yeah, I mean Mana are massive everywhere at this point, you know, if you think about it. Like yeah. yeah. You know, I mean I'm I'm buying tickets for my caregiver, this lady who's been taking who was taking care of my mom, you know, and whatever's and and you know, they're, they're like two they've already played a couple nights at the forum, you know? <laughs> it's like dude, my night is huge, man. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned before Embrace the Chaos was uh unfortunately, I guess you could say, released on September eleventh. Um uh, and uh something that nobody really could have predicted when I'm sure when that uh, record release was scheduled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I read that like a lot of bands were canceling their tours. But you guys were not. You guys were like, no, we're going to keep playing. Yeah. And we're going to also speak out against the war. Yeah. At the time, you know, um, we just felt it. It just felt right. You know, like we got to keep playing. 
and the and you know at that moment there was a lot of like like um uh anti anti kind of like you know like beating up on arab kids or whatever you know mm -hmm. and all this other stuff we ended up playing new york i want to say like two weeks right after it had happened and i remember people coming up to me and being like thank you for coming like thank you for we need this we need like music is medicine you know what i mean and we needed that and so um you know there might have been like one or two haters like why are you playing at this time you know whatever but you know for the most part it was all positive that we kept going you know and what else were we going to do at that point you know it's like our record was like just there we had just released and we had you know at that point in our careers we were probably touring eight eight nine months out of the year man you know so we just had to we had to keep keep it going you know yeah i mean how did people react to you speaking out against the war i mean i don't remember people people didn't really feel very comfortable being anti-war mainstream mainstream america in the beginning in the beginning it was it was not a a, a cool i mean i'm not gonna say cool but it wasn't like a very people acted like it was anti-patriotic to speak out against that war yeah yeah like the the yeah the position at the time was yeah or or like you know um being against the war at the time was just not you know something i guess favorable in the media at the time you know like kind of like you know why you you know for us for us it was it was just a no-brainer because we were already kind of like knew that whatever the tragedy was that it happened certain powers that be were going to take advantage of it and use that situation to for their own ends you mm -hmm. know so that was our thing you know like we're we, we you know we want to promote peace we're like one of the first bands that were part of like big anti-war shows and things like that you know and if there's anything that's you know as far as history is concerned i mean look what happened you know <laughs> you know i mean look at the situation in afghanistan and in iraq and all that shit you know so um quite a quagmire that we had put ourselves into at that time you know so yeah it wasn't it, it wasn't too cool at the time though in the beginning for sure no i mean now everybody's like oh yeah yeah i was always against the war oh, man. <laughs> yeah but uh that's not how it was back then i remember no 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 yeah it wasn't <laughs> yeah no. But I guess that's one of those things you got to just, you know, if you feel what, what's right and right, you know, not to say that everything, you know, that you're going to stand for is always going to be right. But then some things it's like you just, you know, like, fuck, it just felt like that was what we had to do. You know, I think a lot of people were shocked that um, the idea that we could be attacked on, you know, American soil in like in the year, you know, 2011 or 2001, I think that was probably why a lot of people were felt like we had to go to war you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and shit i mean you got to think how emotional how like crazy as far as like yeah new york getting attacked seeing those 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 buildings drop yeah. it's psychological you know psychologically it's like really you know and i remember like going to ground zero when we went to go gig there two weeks after and it just the it just the eeriness the vibe of, of of the place the smell i'll never forget the smell because it was like this 
rotting smell, but then it mixed with like a, a burnt electronics, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, like wiring or whatever. It's just weird, man. Yeah, I was fucking, it was a wild time. I mean, to live through that and then, you know, and, and you know, and, and all the things that we've lived through in this lifetime now, it's fucking nuts, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And your disc cogs, it sounds, it looks like you did a lot of like, uh, guest performances on other records in the early 2000s like one a couple that stick out to me you played on uh, king chango's um return of el santo okay yeah yeah um, yeah r.i.p blanquito uh, one of the brothers from that band yeah man yeah what do you yeah. remember about that session um i just remember they were a band that we thought like oh shit these guys are kind of like us but they're from new york and they were yeah. playing la and killing it man and we were just kind of like, oh shit, like, like there was a nice kind of like friendly rivalry again, like with those guys, like kind of like, oh shit, King Chango, like these dudes are fucking, you know, they're no joke, yo. So I, I just remember it being super cool and being able to record with them, you know, like, yeah, like collaborate with those guys. It was fucking cool. Yeah. You play, you mentioned before you played on a, a Santana record. Mm -hmm. You played with Money Mark record uh black eyed peas yeah lots lots of lots of lots of guest spots i guess yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's what that's what you you know horn guys do what's up what do? <laughs> <laughs> anybody out there need some horns <laughs> yeah you know yeah so it's like yeah for sure um i used to do the guest thing a lot more than you know nowadays it's like yeah every once in a while i think the last guest thing i did was for like uh, this it was like a baby band that j just wanted some sacks on it. And I was like, yeah, I'll record. Just buy me a burrito. And then after that, before that, it was with Western uh, Standard, the ska band, uh, ska orchestra. Yeah, yeah. 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 You played on their first record, I think, right? The, the first one. Yeah, yeah. What, okay, what was the baby band you played with that you for a burrito? I'm going to try to remember. Hold on a second. <laughs> um, uh, let me try to remember. What was their names at the time? Because they broke up literally. Like I, and they, it's funny because they called me. And they're like, "Hey, man, we're gonna play a show. Would you want to come and sit in?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll do it. What's up?" And then, like two gigs later, they broke up. <laughs> oh, what was their name? But, but oh no, actually. And then there's another band that kind of offshooted off of that. They're called the McCharmies. That's right. All right. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's it's it's. I'm all I'm all for uh you know playing with younger bands and recording with them too you know like it, it keeps your it keeps the thing you know one thing I like about it too is that especially with younger musicians and younger bands there's a certain kind of excitement and energy that you don't get from like jaded ass old dudes you know like <laughs> oh man here we are again you know like you know these dudes are just hungry and happy you know I like that yeah stoked to play the show not like grumbling exactly <laughs> there's been you know bits of reggae and scott throughout the you know later work um one one that kind of uh, fascinates me is a recent one what well, was more of a dance hall it was a um, was a cover that you did with um shireen anderson la rama de mesquite mm. by, uh, the, yeah can you talk about that a little bit yeah, yeah, Rama de Mesquite. Well, that was one of the songs that I think I mentioned that like didn't make the album. Yeah, so you re was that a new recording then 
that you no. did? No, that was part of, that was the actual recording that we did from the sessions, but then we got Shireen on it after the fact, I believe. I want to say oh, okay. after. Yeah. And uh, super cool. Super, you know, it was great working with her. And we ended up, I believe she ended up playing with Ozo one time when we gigged out in Florida. How was that show? Actually, I was not at that show. I was, some, something had happened with some family shit and I missed that show. Yeah. Oh, it's too bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I did, was there for the filming of the video with her and everything. So she's super sweet, super cool, you know. And uh, hopefully one of these days we'll, our paths will cross and we can do that song, you know, on stage or whatever. So I assume the video was shot just recently then, like a couple years ago when you released it? Yeah, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. It must be weird to shoot a video for a song you recorded like a... Uh, five or six years earlier <laughs> yep 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 exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> Thank you for listening to In Defense of Ska. To support the show and hear more, please sign up for our Patreon. Intro and outro music by Slow Gherkin from the EP Lives. Download it on Bandcamp. Please rate and review the podcast and tell a friend. Follow at In Defense of Ska on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. The book In Defense of Ska by Aaron Carnes is available from Clash Books. Order it online. Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International is our editor. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying ska now more than ever. Oh, zo, ma, li, ya se fue, ya se fue. You ever seen Ozo Motley live, Aaron? No, I've gotten close a few times, but then it just didn't work out. Damn. I saw him twice live. Oh, yeah? Where'd, where'd you see him at? Saw him in Santa Cruz, The Catalyst. Saw him at The Usual in San Jose. Both shows, awesome. Oh. But you know what else is awesome, Aaron? All the exclusive content. Yeah, yeah. On our Patreon. For only $5, dear listener, you can support this podcast. Support this thing that we love doing, that we love giving to you. And you get extra. You get more. You get more podcasts. Just go sign up. We got perks. We got fun stuff over there. It's going to be great. And you get to talk to us. We're, we're hard to talk to outside of Patreon, but... So unapproachable. Very unapproachable, but we can, you can talk to us. You can directly message us in, in the Patreon website or the Discord. Yep. Huge perk. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. 
call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.